Well, friends, I'm currently uh, finishing up a book called The Uncontrollability of the World. The Uncontrollability of the World. It's not a Christian book. I've been reading through that, and its main argument is this. Here's from the author. He says that the driving cultural force of that form of life we call modern is the idea, the hope, and the desire that we can make the world controllable. The driving cultural force of life today is this hope, this desire that we can somehow make the world controllable. He says the, the world appears to us as something to be known, exploited, attained, appropriated, mastered, and controlled. And often it's about making the world faster, easier, cheaper, more efficient, less resistant, more reliably controllable, unquote. And of course, he goes on to talk about the fact that that's an impossible task, which might explain a lot of our disappointment and frustration. But as this author goes on to talk about this impossible task, we can think about even our own ways and attempts to try to control the world around us, which might explain why most of us hate to be told, be patient. Wait. How many of us like to be told, be patient? How many of us like to wait? Especially, we don't really like to be told to be patient or to, be, or to wait when we have to suffer in the world. Friends, you should know this is not a new phenomenon. It's as old as the world of the Bible itself. James tells us there in James 5, verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate. And merciful. Big big idea this morning. Don't lose hope. The Lord is coming. Don't lose hope. The Lord is coming. Five points. Here's the first. Be patient. Be patient. You can see that call there twice in verse 7. Once in verse 8. And by the way, friends, if you're new to the church uh, we like to work through books of the Bible. We want you to see our authority is from the Word. And so you might want to turn to the book of James and see there and keep it open as I walk through the passage. But again, be patient. You see the call to be patient there twice in verse 7, once in verse 8. You also can see the word patience referenced there in verse 10. But then we ask, all right, we see a lot of that notion to be patient. But be patient for what exactly? Be patient for the coming of the Lord. You can see that notion referenced there in verse 7, in verse 8, and it is discussed in verse 9 as well. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. And so if you're unfamiliar with the teaching of the Bible, the coming of the Lord is the great hope of the Christian faith. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Christians are a future-oriented people. We see that here. We await the return of Christ to come and judge the living and the dead and to establish 
heaven on earth. We await, as Christians, a world restored. See, Many of you have been told that there are two things that are certain in life, death and taxes. Well, I submit to you a third thing that are certain in the world. Everywhere you go on planet earth, right, you can be certain that you will find people that are waiting for a world restored or that want a world restored. Everybody on planet Earth. Everybody on planet Earth knows that there's something wrong with the world and everybody on planet Earth wants it to be fixed in one way or another. And yet secularism has no answer for this. Atheism certainly has no answer for this. The spiritual but not religious has no answer for this. Agnosticism just throws its hands up in the air. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, friend, has one sufficient answer to this hope for a better world. Jesus taught about this coming day of the Lord in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30 and 31. And he says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So when we consider this coming of the Lord, we see there Jesus teaching us at least three things. The Son of Man is coming. We see, secondly, the tribes of the earth are mourning. And the reason why they're mourning, friends, is because uh, this is the beginning of their end. Jesus, when he returns, will judge the unbelieving to bear the eternal punishment that they all deserve. The Son of Man coming, the tribes of the earth mourning. And thirdly, the elect gathering. That is, these Christians gathering under the lordship of Christ to rule on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus taught of this day. Also in John chapter 14, verse 3, he says, if uh, he's speaking to the disciples, he said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And so, friends, that's the great hope as Christians, right? Being with Christ forever. To see death, sin, and wickedness done away with forever and the earth restored so that we can dwell with God again as it was in the beginning. This is the coming day that we are to be patient to wait upon. One of the reasons, by the way, we named our church Restoration, to keep that in view. And Jesus says of this day, this coming day in Matthew 24, verse 36, But concerning that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. And when he returns, friends, uh, there will be no time for repentance. It will happen quickly. Jesus teaches that in Matthew 13, verse 33 to 36, when Jesus says, Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And so, friends, as the world works everything in its power to make this home, the Christian fights to do the very opposite. To understand this is not home, but we wait for our home. Because we know that all of this world will be refined in the fires of Christ's judgment and restored to perfection so that we might then dwell with him upon this earth once again, bringing Eden back to the earth. 
And so it is for this reason that Christians are said to be a people of hope. We are a people of hope. And when we say hope, we don't mean just wishful thoughts. Like, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Now, when we say that Christians are a people of hope, we mean by hope, certainty. Certainty. God, friends, has made a thousand promises, and he has made good on every single one of them, save one. There's one left to be fulfilled this coming day. And that one promise, friend, is built upon the superstructure of the gospel. Our great hope. Where Jesus Christ not only purchased the forgiveness of sins to those that trust him in times past, but also because he did, because he paid for sin on the cross and resurrected and ascended, on the, we also know that heaven is going to come to earth because he promised it. He also, on that day, purchased the day of the Lord. And so that is the great hope of our salvation. That day, I'm begging with you, Restoration Church, To think of that forward day as the motivation for your present obedience. Future grace motivating present obedience in light of the promises of the past being accomplished. Future salvation. That's our hope. The Bible says as much. Take a look at Romans 8, 23 to 24. Guys, you'll remember this was the passage I preached when I came back from my sabbatical years ago that arrested me when I read it. Paul says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who uh, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait. How? We wait eagerly, but with patience, wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, future redemption, for in this hope we were saved. So, friends, salvation is not only being rescued from the penalty of our sins at the cross 2,000 years ago, but it is also being saved to full redemption, full adoption forever and the restoration of all things on that day of the Lord. When Christians will live in resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth, worshiping and enjoying a resurrected Savior forever. This, that day, is our final Salvation. This is the day of the Lord that we wait upon. But we have to be patient for it's coming. Be patient, beloved. Be patient. It's hard. It's hard, but we must be patient for it's coming. And beloved, I hope you you know, be encouraged that the Lord knows that it's hard for us to be patient. He knows that. Why else would he have ordained these words? We can almost hear our Heavenly Father's voice as we sit in some kind of dismay on this earth. We can almost hear his voice say, be patient, son. Be patient, daughter. Be patient. I'm coming soon. Be patient. But of course, we don't like this counsel, do we? How many times in life when you were eager to hear an answer, eager for a solution, eager for a resolution of, a resolution of some kinds, how many times did you gladly hear the words, be patient in response to your question of how long? How much longer till we get there? Be patient. Oh, I love that answer, right? When can we go in? When will this be over? When will the nightmare be over? When will the pain stop? No one likes to be told, be patient in response to those questions. No one ever has, friends. But we especially don't like being told this in a day where we've been conditioned to have so much control over our lives. 
Just think about what has now become so normal by that little phone in your pocket. You can now call anyone, anywhere. You can uh, text anyone, anywhere, anytime. You can even see their faces anytime, anywhere you would like. You can on that phone download Spotify and you can listen to any song you want whenever you want. If you want to kind of create your own playlist of, let's say, you know, Van Halen or Kanye and Garth Brooks, you could put that together and listen to it whenever your heart pleases. You can download Amazon and order your favorite makeup or air freshener and it will be on your doorstep in two days. Or if you really want it, you can get it the same day. You can order a hamburger from McDonald's, a milkshake from Shake Shack, some baklava from the Istanbul Grill, or some kimchi from the local Korean restaurant, or maybe uh, some sushi from Kotobuki. And you can have it all delivered to your door in less than an hour. Looking to meet a spouse? No problem. You have any number of dating apps that will distill everything down to your perfect match and give you 10 or 12 options to contact and have a date that night. Wondering what the score of the big game is. Well, just touch ESPN and you can get it like that. Want to sell some clothing items? Take a picture of them. Put it on Craigslist. You can get paid by the evening. Want to learn about some things. Maybe want to learn some more about reform theology. Want to learn maybe about Eastern mysticism. Want to learn about the economic system of 12th century Japan. No problem. Download a podcast. They'll teach it to you right now. Interested in a new book? No need to order one. Download Audible. Over 10,000 books available to you. And you can listen to them, them, have them be read to you at any time you want. And in comes Jesus amidst your suffering. And he says, be patient. Wait. Friends, maybe... Our how long, O Lord, has been at least slightly conditioned by our environment to expect everything to be quick and easy. Maybe the reason why we don't want to be patient is because we've been taught that we should never have to be patient. That somehow we deserve to have everything go our way in the time frame in which we've come to expect As though God needed to get on our time schedule instead of needing to learn to get under His schedule. Friends, as we think about that day of the Lord, Jesus told us that there would be a delay between His going and His coming. He told us that. He told us that a thousand days are as a day to Him. It's been two days. Most importantly, He promised that He would return and make everything right. He promised us that, and he didn't spare his own son, so surely we can trust him to fulfill that promise, even though it's been 2,000 years. We must learn to be patient until his coming. And by the way, guys, after all, isn't love patient? We do love him, don't we? I pray that we are more aware of what our social environment is doing to our expectations and begin to submit to the time-honored wisdom of the farmer who plants his seed, prays for rain, and waits. And look at it in the text there. Waits for precious fruit. That's what we're waiting on. Precious fruit in the coming of the Lord.
We're going to have to learn to be patient as we wait for the Lord to return and make all that is wrong right. Beloved, don't lose hope. The Lord is coming. Be patient. And secondly, establish your hearts. Establish your hearts. And we know, as James has already taught us way back in chapter 1, verse 18, that of God's own will, he has brought us forth by the word of truth. God did it. God brought us forth. We know that by grace, God establishes our hearts anew. It's no work of our own. Salvation is no work of our own. But we also know that scripture, uh, we also know that scripture teaches us that we need to work out the salvation that he has worked in. Right? The Bible teaches that as well. Even as God has predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1.5, we also get Ephesians 4.1. So then we are commanded to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. In other words, God saves, God sanctifies, God keeps, but he deposits his spirit within us to give us not only new desires for holiness, but also just as importantly, the power to work that holiness out. Therefore, it is not enough, beloved, to say, Jesus, save me. I'll just sit here and be patient until I die or he returns. No, God saved you and has sent the Holy Spirit into the hearts of his people to then work out what he has worked in. And so that means we must learn to work in concert with the spirit that is at work in us to will and to work for God's good pleasure. Thus, the command here from James in verse 8. In the power of the gospel, establish your hearts. Establish your hearts. Now that word establish is the same word for the word set when it was said of Jesus that he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem and bear the cross. Same word. Set. Jesus didn't just casually sit there casually and wait for the cross to come to him. No, he set his face and he went towards the cross. He established his heart and he went to the cross. So, beloved, it must be with us. We must set our face and go to it. It is not enough to sit on the porch of life and drink your sweet tea and watch the summer sun dip into the ocean waiting on the coming of Christ. And then upon his coming, sort of slowly getting your things together and moseying down to the town square to meet him. No, no. You must get up from the rocking chair and establish your heart for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's close. It's near. As it says down there in verse 9, the judge is standing at the door. In other words, as we read a moment ago from Mark 13, you have to stay awake because he could come at any time. And when he does, you must be found with a heart prepared to meet him, eager to meet with him upon his coming. Beloved, the Christian is often referred to as a soldier in the New Testament. A soldier. Where we daily wake up, put on the gospel armor, and weird the sword of the word. And we patiently fight the good fight of faith in this dark and often dreary world. We don't take life, in other words. Christians do not take life laying down. That is not the kind of patience that's being taught here. We establish our hearts, right? The patience that's being taught here is an active one. We establish our hearts. We resolve to fight the good fight of faith. We wake up each day and say, maybe today's the day. Maybe it's tomorrow. I don't know. But no matter, I will set my face to go into Washington today. And if today is the day of the Lord, I will not be surprised, but instead I will gladly meet it. That's got to be us. 
Which is why, by the way, James labors that point that he does back in chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. When he says, in essence, don't say, today or tomorrow, I'm going to go over to Las Vegas for a year and make a little money and come back, right? That's why he's laboring. He's under like, it's you don't know when you're going to die. You don't know when he's going to return. You don't know. Remember, your life is a vapor. Your life is a mist. As Jesus says of the man who builds bigger barns, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Church family, be patient until the coming of the Lord and establish your hearts for that day every day. Don't be blown around by every wind of doctrine. As we discussed last week, do not live for self-indulgence in this world, but instead rise up Put on the armor of the gospel. Lean into each day expecting to see and hear from Christ. Love neighbor. Make disciples. Plead his promises on the brightest day and the darkest night. Set your face to go into Washington every day. So that when you die or when he comes, you will not be surprised. But instead you could say, I fought the good fight. I kept the faith by the grace of God. I didn't leave anything on the field. But I gave it all to Christ in his kingdom. I didn't lose heart. I was patient until the coming day of the Lord. I established my heart. I didn't hit the coast button and just sort of coast on. And as I established my heart and leaned into the day, looking for Christ, thirdly, I didn't grumble against one another. Don't lose hope, beloved. The Lord is coming. Be patient. Establish your hearts. And thirdly, don't grumble against one another. Don't grumble against one another. Now, if you guys are anything like me, you look down there at verse 9, and you ask yourself the question, as I did earlier this week, what in the world is this verse doing here? Why is it in this portion of the passage? Don't grumble against one another. But when you slow down and think about it, this command makes all the sense in the world. Think about it. What is it we Washingtonians do all of the time in early March? When we pull up somewhere, we get out of the metro and we make our way to the office or the restaurant, whatever the case may be, on a really cold day in March. What do we always do? It's so cold. When is it going to get warm again? Right? We complain. I do it all the time. Let's be honest. I complain in January. But nevertheless, right? In early March, it's always cold. We always get like one day of snow. And It's March. It's supposed to be warm. No, it isn't. In Washington, it's always cold. Every once in a while, the Lord just sort of kindly throws us a couple warm days. But nevertheless, what we do is we want, we begin to grumble. We complain about the weather because it's so close to the spring, we want it to be warm. And instead, we grumble about the cold weather. God knows this. He knows how difficult it is to be patient and at the same time, not grumble. We're sick of winter. We want the spring. We complain. We grumble. Just think about how much we already grumble when we hardly have to be patient about anything anymore. Right? You call up Domino's and say, order the pizza at 1130. It's 1155. The pizza hasn't come. What do you do? Man, these guys are so slow. It's been 25 minutes and they still haven't brought that pizza here. (laughs) Even with the multitude of luxury at our fingertips in a matter of minutes, We are conditioned to grumble even more because of that increased control. How much more might we grumble against one another when God doesn't get on our timetable? 
either in answering our prayers as we want, when we want, or how we want. Or instead of rejoicing with those that were that rejoice, we grumble against those people that get good gifts. They get something good, and we kind of don't like it. So we grumble about them in our hearts or maybe to a friend or the like. I heard a couple weeks ago from a pastor that made this point. You know, we think about our church covenant over here, right, that we're going to bear with one another's burdens. And he made the point, that's the easy part. We tend to think that's the hard part, but it's not. The harder one is the other side of that, rejoicing with those that rejoice. And the more that he began to explain that, man, that's so true. It's harder to rejoice with those that rejoice than it is to bear with others' burdens. We don't like when others have what we want, and so we grumble. Yes, this command makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? And notice, by the way, that the passage is not even talking about grumbling necessary to God. It's towards one another. It's us. Just think about how much counsel James has been providing about the power of the tongue and the need to, provide, to bridle it. So going all the way back to the beginning, and even right here in this passage, with various trials and temptations pressing in all around us, as we wait patiently for the return of the Lord, we will be tempted to grumble against one another as we wait. Right? It happened just days after Israel's deliverance from slavery as they were waited for Moses' return. Right, He was up there on Mount Sinai. So how long is he going to be up there? Let's create ourselves an idol. Right? And Adam sort of bends to their wishes and on they go. Think about the disciples as they grumbled about who would be able to sit at his right hand and Jesus' right and left hands as they waited for Jesus to ascend his kingdom. And we can think about all the grumbling that has happened as we have had to wait for the return of Christ in our own life together the last couple years alone. COVID protocols, masks, no masks, vaccine, no vaccine, downstairs, upstairs, whatever. Race, politics, doctrines, personal matters, preferences, and the like. Paul says in Galatians 5, 13 to 16, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you, but if you bite and devour one another... Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Beloved, Jesus bought us with his blood. In Christ, the church is one body. It's a beautiful truth. There's no longer Jew and Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. But you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so, yes, as the years pass by and the various trials and sufferings press in and around us, it's hard to be patient. It's hard. But we must establish our hearts in the gospel. And we must resist the temptation to grumble against one another as we wait. And instead, we lean into our common bond of Christ and we build each other up. We don't tear each other down. We build each other up in Christ, no matter those differences or experiences. We have got to recognize, guys, this struggle to be patient. And we need to be reminded, as James teaches us here, that also we're going to have to answer to the judge for all those grumblings. It's right there in verse 9. You'll have to answer for them. And so instead of grumbling, I give you Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. Instead of grumbling this, let us hold fast the confession of our, there it is, hope, 
without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. He promised is faithful. And and let us consider how to stir up one another. Not down. Stir up one another to what? To love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And, wait for it, all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's something about the coming day of the Lord that should be increasing our desire to encourage one another and not miss this gathering and to not grumble against one another and hope in Christ. And so, beloved, don't lose hope. The Lord is coming. Be patient. Establish your hearts. Don't grumble against one another. And fourth, remember the prophets. This will help you to be patient. Remember the prophets. Look again down there in verse 10 and 11. James transitions his counsel by providing another example. Right? He's already used the example of the farmer that plants a seed and waits for the precious fruit. And now he uses the long line of prophets. Most especially Job as an example of those that waited patiently and established their hearts through significant suffering. Guys, we moderns, I realize I say this with a bit of bias as a history guy. We moderns are terrible historians. If we remember the past at all, it's often selective and sentimental, not hefty and honest. Scripture, though, helps establish our hearts for the future by looking back to the prophets of the past. That's what the Scripture's there for. Scripture helps establish our hearts for the future by looking to the prophets of the past. And when we study the prophets of the past, we find exactly what we are told a thousand times over, but all of us, myself included, don't seem to remember. Namely, First Peter, right? Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. I think it's strange almost all the time, and I am surprised. Yet the Bible teaches us you ought not be surprised when the fire trial comes upon you. But when we study the prophets, we see that's what happened to them. We as Christians stand in a long line of sufferers. As Matthew Henry says, those who were the greatest examples of suffering affliction were also the best and greatest examples of patience. So let's remember that the symbol, beloved, the symbol of our faith is an execution device. The crown always has to travel through the cross first. Always. It's always been the way it is. God's been honest about that. And Hebrews then reminds us of these prophets and their faith in good order. Hebrews reminds us of these prophets in Hebrews 11, 32 to 38 as an example of faith. Hebrews eleven thirty two to 38, describing those prophets. He says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, 
destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world, I love this, or was the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Remember the prophets of old, beloved. And remember Job, as James tells us. Consider the steadfastness of Job. Word there could also be rendered endurance. Remember the endurance of Job. He was subjected to a kind of suffering that none of us will ever experience. He lost his family, ten kids. He was subjected to boils on his skin. Job's suffering was severe. His closest friends accused him of some hidden sin because of what he was suffering so severely. Job's friends were poor students in God's university. They assume, like many confessing Christians still do today, that suffering is always in direct proportion to one's sin. That's the prosperity gospel. And it's a lie. And while Job knew that he and his suffering was not because of any sin that he committed, his faith, Job's faith, still struggled inside of the heat of those refining fires. Just as all the prophets of the old did. It's not like they're just happily skipping along through those sufferings. They're having a hard time. But they trusted the Lord through it. Listen to some of the words of Job himself as he's going through through this heat. Job 19, 7 to 13. He's referring to the Lord here. He says, Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. And he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown away from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. And my hope has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has put my brothers far from me. And those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. Who does Job blame for his problems? God. Beloved, in this he is not to be admired. But in this he is to be understood. Had you told Job amidst this time, maybe respond to him at this moment when he's saying all this, can you imagine how he might have reacted if you said to him, be patient, Job. It would have been hard for him, right, to control itself in some way. I'm sure Job, like the rest of us, would have struggled to contain himself had we said to him, be patient. In fact, we know later that Job is judged for some of his grumbling, just as James warns us. It's understandable, beloved, to struggle. But we must not lose hope. We have to learn to trust through the pain, through the question, through the doubt. We have to learn to trust and still maintain hope as Job did. Look at the next words from Job. I read you Job 19, 7 to 13. I'm going to read you now Job 19, 23 to 27. He just said that what he just said. Now this. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. They were, Job, by the way. 
Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were ingrained in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. He trusted through it. Even in the darkest portion of the night, Job's trust never failed. He mourned, he cried, he lamented, he protested, he questioned, he even cursed the day of his own birth. He went to the brink, but by the grace of God, Job held on. He never cursed God. Like the other prophets of old who went through hell, he held on by the grace of God because he knew God. He knew what he knew about God. He knew that his Redeemer lived. He knew it. And he knew that the day of the Lord would come. And on that day, he would stand on the earth. Job knew it. He reminded himself of that. And on that day, he knew that he would see his Redeemer. And yet, though he shall die, Job knew, I'm going to live. Oh, beloved, you must remember the prophets. They are a long line of sufferers who went through the refining fires of God's grace to come out on the other side, beautiful, refined gold. And none of them more than Jesus himself. The prophet of prophets, who is more than a prophet. Who, Jesus, for the joy set before him, what did he do? Endure the cross, right? Despising the shame and is now seated at the right hand of God. Jesus was beaten, he was scorned, he was mocked, he was spit upon, he was crucified, though he had done no wrong, and he did it for you, beloved. He did it for you. He came for you, that where he is there you may be with him. Jesus suffered and paid the price of your redemption with his blood. Though he had done no wrong. He played the price of your redemption. His blood was the ransom payment to the Father that you might be counted free, that you might be forgiven, that you might, with Job, have hope in a day of the Lord. You will get that resurrected body, that you will be counted righteous in Christ, and you will live with him on that resurrected earth with that resurrected Savior forever. Jesus has done it. He has paid it all. Indeed, it's... Uh, as we think about this, as we remember those prophets, I'm reminded of, of a story that R.C. Sproul tells of a father who went to visit his pastor after the premature death of his son. Sproul tells a story. He said he asked the pastor, where was God when my son died? And the pastor replied in a calm and steady voice. The same day he was when his son died. Beloved, we have no gospel of straw. We have no gospel of straw. We have a gospel of gold. Confident, pure gold. It has gone through the worst of fires, and every time it has come out stronger, more refined, more beautiful. There's enough there to stand on. More even. Remember the prophets. Remember your Savior. Remember Jesus, who was patient who did establish his heart, who never grumbled, who bled for you, 
that you and I might have hope in the darkest of days, that we might be patient as we await for his return because we know that he is coming. Our Redeemer lives. We will see him. Don't lose hope. Jesus is coming, beloved. Be patient. Establish your heart. Don't grumble against one another. Remember the prophets, especially remember Christ. And finally, briefly, see the Lord. See the Lord. Look in verse 7. We're told there to see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit. And in verse 11, we are told that after considering the story of Job, that we have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Two verses, right? See the farmer. See the purpose of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you guys, and he goes on to say, see the purpose of the Lord, how he's compassionate and merciful. I don't know about you. I ain't writing the sentence that way. I'm writing it different. If I'm writing that sentence, I say, see how the Lord, right? See, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, see how the Lord is sovereign and powerful. That's what I would have said. But that's not what James says. With Job fresh on his mind, instead of reminding us of the attributes of God, James reminds us of the character of God. Which is the very same thing that the Lord seems to do to Job himself. Right When you read through the book of Job, it's a tough read. You read through the book of Job, what's the thing that's most obvious to us that the Lord never seems to do? You ever notice this? He never answers all of Job's questions. <laughs> but instead, what does the Lord do? He reminds Job of who he is. It's as though the Lord wants to say to Job, I'm your answer. I'm your answer. As Sproul said of it, also, Job was not asked to trust a plan, but a person. A personal God who says, learn who I am. And when you know me, you know, you know enough to handle anything. And friends, this is the same conclusion that Job comes to himself. At the end of the book, in Job 42, verse 3, Job says, after all that has happened, he says in Job 42, 3, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye, wait for it, sees you. By you there, we don't mean just his attributes. Again, it's who he is. It's his character, what he's like. If we are going to be blessed and remain steadfast in following Christ, we must be patient until the coming of the Lord. We're going to have to do the hard work of seeing the Lord, not just his attributes, but his character, that he's compassionate, that he's merciful, that he's a good God. He's a good God. He's a faithful God. You can trust him. And we know that because we've seen it in Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, what Jesus is like and who's the Father is like. So, beloved, God is compassionate. God is merciful. Whatever it is he calls us to or through, we can trust him. He who did not spare his only son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Y'all have heard me say this a thousand times over. I love you. I love you so much. But you don't get my son. I will not sacrifice him for you. I won't do that. I love him more than you do. Or I love him more than I love you. But that's not what God did. God gave his son to get you. 
to bring you home. That's how much he loves his bride. We can trust him. Authentic Christianity does not build its hope or its home on this earth. We look to a better one. We look to a better city. Therefore, we wait for it to come. And beloved, it's going to come. Heaven is coming. Jesus will come. Don't lose hope. The Lord is coming. And so be patient. Establish your hearts. Don't grumble against one another. Remember the prophets. Remember Christ. See the Lord. See the character of the Lord. That he's compassionate. That he's merciful. We can trust him. And soon enough we'll be home. And we'll be glad that we gave our all to him and to each other. Be patient. He's coming. Let's pray. It's hard to be patient, God. It's hard. It's been 2,000 years. But we're here. We're going to wait. It's hard to wait patiently, so teach us to do that. Thank you for this word. You knew it would be hard, so you gave it to us. Thank you. You're a good father. So help us to be patient, God. Help us to establish our hearts, not just on Sundays, but every day. Help us to not grumble one another against one another. Help us to remember the prophets. Help us to especially remember Jesus. And help us to see what you're like. And come soon, Jesus. Come soon. We love you. We trust you. And part of the reason it's hard to wait is because we do want to be with you. We want to be like Job and be able to say, after all of the mess we walked through, I didn't know what I was talking about. Things too wonderful. But now I have seen you. We want to see you face to face. Come soon. But until then, may we be found in the fields waiting for you to return. We pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.